my viewers of the prod and my listeners of the chandela podcast so recently dr charles new book quest for restoring financial stability in india was released and this is a collection of the essays that sir wrote while he was the deputy governor of the rbi special offers on this book are running on steel deal and amazon and you can get a discount up to 20 plus 10% on steel deal website and the best part is that the author share of this book will all go towards pratham india for providing free education the underprivileged children check out the link in the description box for more details so sir i would like to start by asking that what was the main idea idea behind compiling your essays into a book and why do you believe that india is lacking financial stability uh yes uh, ritwij i think it's a good question to start with um uh, as i describe in the very start Uh, starting remarks uh, in the book uh, you know the speeches and the essays i gave and wrote during my term uh, they were in some sense uh, my life blood uh, during the term as a deputy governor at the reserve bank of india uh, they were my tool for change uh, they were my uh, advocacy for uh, whatever reforms we thought uh, that the banking and the financial sector more generally required uh you know public memory is often short uh, these speeches come out sometimes they have an immediate impact uh sometimes they actually help make the change sometimes they have an impact more in the sense of coverage but the changes don't happen and some speeches don't even get the coverage uh so yeah. when i finished the term i yeah. reflected upon uh, the various uh essays and speeches that i had written uh i had started getting some clarity in my own mind as to what were the common themes because of which financial stability seemed very hard to restore uh, in india in spite of uh, i would say a very valiant effort on part of the reserve bank of india during my time uh and then this emerged there emerged this thought that uh, essentially it was due to what i call in the book as fiscal dominance so i have a very extensive preface chapter in the book which is not an yeah. essay or a speech that i had given earlier uh, and it is preceded by a masterful forward by dr yv reddy who gives a historical perspective on fiscal yeah. dominance and what is fiscal dominance put simply it is the fiscal pressures of the government the fact that it is spending a lot relative to its revenues and needs to borrow uh, these monies uh, that creates pressures and the fact so fiscal dominance is when the government pressures to roll over yeah. its borrowing programs starts yeah. compromising the central bank's policies and in the preface chapter i position fiscal dominance as a theory of everything in india of course i'm yeah. exaggerating uh but what i'm trying to say is that because the central bank the reserve bank of india is an all purpose central bank it does supervision yeah. regulation external sector management monetary policy liquidity right. policy etc all of these uh start coming under a pervasive uh, pressure and influence from the government 
then its borrowing pressures are very large. And so if I could just uh, sum it up in one sentence, essentially the financial stability in India, which is can you keep banks, non-banks, external sector in a stable position, the financial stability in India can no longer be separated from the health of the fiscal situation. So fiscal stability and financial stability have become very intertwined because of the scale of government deficits, because of the pressures that it has created, and because of the weak institutions that we have to safeguard fiscal and financial In the previous chapter, I provide fiscal and terms we could consider undertaking. But at a, at, at a deeper level, the book is both a summary of my term. It is my diagnosis of the common issue. I don't want to, I, I don't try to put the attribution of the problems on like 10 different parties because then you don't know where to start. Yes, everyone plays a part in how a system evolves to a point. But I would say to me, that is the root cause. And so we have to address it head on. Uh, and I think, as I said, uh, it, my, my writing is always a tool to be an advocate for change. And I think that's what the book and the preface chapter are. Okay. So please put some light on the matter that how we can protect the uh, econ- Indian economy from physical dominance and its side effects. Like if you can yeah. share some little insights. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. So let me first talk about the side effects. Why is fiscal dominance important? Uh, Fiscal dominance is important to pay attention to because uh, when central banks policies get compromised across board, uh, they can essentially keep the gatekeeper of financial stability compromised. And I think that's the real issue. What are the pressures? The pressures on the fiscal come from short term electoral uh, cycles. Uh, They come from wanting to always posture the growth to be at a high number. Uh, And uh, the central bank's objective is in contrast, such as protecting depositors' interests, protecting the external sector, so not allowing the rupee to depreciate in a very rapid way, Um, you know, maintaining price stability, so not allowing inflation to be a runaway phenomenon. All these are very long-term objectives. You can't achieve them with quick fixes. Central bank has to build uh, buffers in the system and it has to essentially uh, build credibility and commitment on some of these functions and that only happens over a period of time. So the side effects are that when government is borrowing a lot, of course the private sector gets Uh, You know, uh, there is this thing called transmission of monetary policy, which is when central bank cuts rates, uh, do they get passed on to the real economy? Do the borrowing costs come down for a small or micro enterprise? Often in India, this doesn't happen. And one of the reasons is because of the EU government government is borrowing so much that uh, it that supply of government paper starts determining bond yields and borrowing rates in the markets rather than the central bank's uh, interest rate policy. And last, I would say that um, it can lead to uh, crises because I uh, when fiscal and financial situation are so tight in the, the 
book, I call it like being a tight rubber it can snap unexpectedly at any point of time. Uh, and so these kinds of episodes do happen. Uh, we witnessed stress along these lines in 2018, even though it did manifest into a full-blown crisis. Uh, and maybe just one more point, which is that when fiscal dominance is very high and the government is trying uh, all it can to influence central bank policies, unfortunately, even the private sector, which should be focusing on value creation, innovation, yeah. uh, bringing in new ideas, it also starts focusing on primarily rent-seeking, lobbying, consultations, and influence, trying to influence the policies so that they are favorable to the present incumbents rather than actually allowing for creative destruction, entry of new players, and so on. So these are all the side effects. So how do we uh, guard ourselves against it? First and foremost, uh, there has to be uh, and I would say if I had to pick three key items here, I would say first we need an independent fiscal council. This should be bipartisan. It should not okay. report to finance ministry. It should act to the houses of the parliament and its function its function would be that it would hold a mirror to the responsibility and budget management act uh, put simply we, we have the reason why the government borrowing has become so large the reason why fiscal deficits have become so large is because we have allowed programs to keep expanding without actually keeping in check what the expenditures are for proper accounting of these expenditures. And the Fiscal Council can actually fix uh, these things by actually vetting the budget implications of these programs better. Second, I would say we need to calculate in India accurately what is called as a public sector borrowing requirement. So very often the reason why you don't know how much government has borrowed is because it is borrowing off balance sheet or government is undertaking certain programs, but they are being funded not on balance sheet, but they are being funded either through government-owned non-finance corporations or, or their small schemes and so on. Now, what this does is that you never know at a given point of time exactly where we are. Now, that's not a great situation to be in if you need to know uh, where your macroeconomy is, what the risks are and whether the programs of the government are effective in the first place. So we need to calculate a public sector borrowing requirement of the consolidated balance sheet of the central yeah. government, the state governments, and the way. Um, uh, and, and, and third, I would say that uh, we do need a very, very serious divestment program. The government still owns majority stakes in several large sectors, which I would not Consider as uh, the government is now very tight uh, and uh, yeah. on financing, and so especially in the midst of COVID, relief efforts. And how can we help them bringing down stakes below 50% in many of these cases and maybe even entirely getting out. Uh, this would also allow it to remit uh, from the operations of these entities. On the financial stability front, I make three points. Uh, the allowed to undertake its banking supervision and regulation in an ownership neutral manner. Uh, 
this requires that the Banking Nationalization Act not override the powers of the Reserve Bank of India on public sector banks. It should be able to replace management, perhaps even require automatic dilution of government stakes if government is not putting in the capital into public sector banks in time. That's point one. Uh, Second, I would say the central bank on its own needs to adopt more rule-based decision-making. Uh, presently, a lot of discretion gets exercised, a lot of exceptions are made, and uh, many times these exceptions are without sunset clauses, so, you know, they don't always, uh, they become sometimes near permanent features rather than being temporary features. Uh, I think this can be avoided. We have a rule-based framework in inflation targeting. I don't see why we can't have such a rule-based framework with exceptions and explanations being provided uh, in the case of supervision and regulation. And lastly, I would say the central bank does need to hold up its own uh, stance of financial stability as a long-term objective. It needs to repeat this, uh, iterate this, reiterate this as many times as necessary to resist the pressures of this dominance. Besides doing rule-based decision-making, it can sometimes say no. Uh, It can speak truth to power. It can flag issues such as fiscal deficits and fiscal slippages, which in the area of inevitability, there is no need to be shy about having an honest discussion about these issues. Uh, And, you know, in a way, it has to lean against the wind, anticipating these problems and building a lot of buffers for financial stability in good time. Uh, In the end, I feel on both fiscal and financial stability fronts, uh, we need to them. Uh, even in the midst of COVID, as we undertake relief efforts, as we expect bank losses to mount, because it's only if our medium-term prospects look bright on growth and stability front, uh, will the markets be uh, somewhat, uh, you know, uh, light on us uh, on short-term uh, uh, stretch, which is required actually to undertake the needed expenditures. Okay. Okay, another very important topic raised in your book is the Monetary Policy Committee and which you have been a, a member as well. So what are your assessments of the RBI's Monetary Policy Committee during your tenure? Yeah, as I was just saying, uh, you know, just think about the flexible inflation targeting framework that we have in place. It's a very nicely designed institutional arrangement. Uh, it, it appoints uh, an independent body. It has three members of the Reserve Bank of India and three independent members appointed by the government of India. The governor of the Reserve Bank of India has a casting vote in case of a tie. It has been given a very specific mandate to maintain uh, consumer price inflation at 4% with a band of 2% around it while paying attention to growth. So it has a rule, but there is an exception allowed, basically, that you have to pay attention to growth as well. Uh, And, uh, you know, there's a very specific policy instrument that's given to this committee, which is the policy repo rate. This is the rate at which the central bank lends money to banks and through that It's a dial through which it tries to control the borrowing rates in the rest of the economy. And third, there is democratic accountability. Every single member on the Monetary Policy Committee has to provide minutes uh, two weeks after the Monetary Policy Committee meetings are over as to why they voted the way they did. And if the target has not been met, 
by the central bank for three quarters in a row, then an explanation has to be provided as to why uh, the breach happened. So as an institutional arrangement, this is a very sound design. Uh, I think it has done really good for the Indian economy, both external sector and domestic investor uh, domestic investors as well as household inflation expectations for most part of the last four or five years have been coming down. Uh, in the last few quarters, the inflation has been above 6% and again, the inflation expectations are rising. But it just shows that actually it is very important to maintain constant commitment and credibility uh, of the inflation mandate and target of the central bank. Uh, overall, I would say that assessment of the monetary policy committee should not take into account just the inflation and growth outcomes. It should also take into account the external sector stability outcomes. The volatility of the rupee has been quite low since even the yeah. direction towards adoption of inflation targeting was flagged in September 2014. This is a very important yeah. advantage uh, to the economy. So these gains need to now be secured and uh, further built upon. Uh, commitment of the central bank to inflation stability gets built not over just four years. It takes a long stretch of time to do that. So my recommendation is that when the re while the review is underway, that ideally they should give the existing framework a run for another one term at least because it takes a while to amplify and benefit from the long-term gains that one gets from uh, central bank's credibility on the inflation target. Okay, okay. Sir, the most discussed and debated topic in India is the non-performing assets. So what according to you is the reason behind NPA being such a big problem in the public sector banks of India? Uh, see, the real problem, of course, is rooted in the uh, 2009 to 12 stimulus. Uh, again, it was very much the short-term pressures uh, to posture growth uh, in the midst of the global financial crisis and its aftermath. So banks were asked to lever up on some of the infra steel, power and other sectors and you know when you lend too much in a short period of time underwriting qualities go for a toss, banks start lending down the quality curve. Unfortunately the problems then got postponed uh, because of regulatory forbearance or not recognizing the problems in time and this is the key point that I want to come to which is that one of the main reasons why loan losses are not recognized in India in time is because doing so would lead to a recapitalization bill for the government. The government is reluctant to pay up because it has other immediate expenditures yeah. to undertake and therefore yeah. they lean on the central bank to compromise the supervisory standards. And I think this is a fundamental fiscal dominance pressure in the in a key regulatory function which is to mark the books of the banks well. My sense is this, the job of the regulator in part is to mark the books of the banks right, ensure that banks are not overstating the value of their books. But uh, frankly, it is not just a problem that happened with these legacy loans. Over the last five years on the uh, MSME asset class, the micro, small and medium enterprise loans, 
the sector is having difficulty nevertheless if it's for five years it is a structural problem it's no longer a cyclical issue uh, but you know we keep designing a restructuring and relief package for postponing the loan loss recognition on this sector year after year and this can't go on uh, and i think this is to me the fundamental problem because the day we mark the books of the banks properly capital will have to come into banks in a timely manner if capital is being put up for the lending activity in a timely manner we will not get the lending excesses and the busts that happen and even when the busts happen because capital has to be put up there will be a demand to recover well on the underlying non performing loans to resolve them in a swift manner to take the promoters who have defaulted on their loans to the insolvency and bankruptcy court and get and banks would want to earn a recovery right now we are for most part in the kicking the can down the road mode that doesn't help because the wounds just fester rather than healing banks become risk averse they keep throwing good money after the bad to not recognize the bad loans so they call what they do what is called as evergreening or extend and pretend of these loans uh, and you know it's it's a it's a terrible uh, it's a terribly inefficient intermediation system note that many of our pri- private banks are extremely well capitalized they are far more aggressive in marking of their books uh, not every single one there are clearly some governance failures there too but i'm talking about private banks as a sector uh, and yeah. they are lending well uh, i think they might be able to lend at even lower rates if there was more competition but right now a big part of the deposits in the system are with public sector banks who are not actually lending as well and so overall the economy is unfortunately paying for this lack of capitalization in the economy okay a very large issue that is haunting india according to critics is the privatization of the public sector banks capitalists took this as a jadoo pichadi which will solve all the problems of the country and critics categorizes it as crony capitalism so what are your views on this issue and how do you see this whole debate uh, see right now the fiscal situation rithvij is such that uh, we have to put divestments at a minimum on the table Uh, there is no reason why government stakes can't be diluted below majority the narsimhan committee in the 90s pjnai committee 5 years back they've all recommended that the government bring down its stakes to 25% or 30% this would relieve the exchequer from the burden of the recapitalization pressures now i fully agree that we can't just one fine day wake up and say everything has to be reprivatized where are the who are the suitors uh, we to do due diligence on them will they be able to bring financial and technological expertise will they be able to bring risk management expertise will they ensure yeah. that the governance is right so clearly the new buyers who come in and uh, you know ideally it should be some key institutional uh, investors or large investors who come in domestically or from abroad uh, but they will have to be a due diligence process and also they would be reluctant to come in until the balance sheets are in the right shape so i think what the before the so we have to think about it as a well calibrated strategy that is actually telegraphed and laid out and along the way the governance management uh, incentives and and and, uh, and 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 risk controls in public sector banks have to be improved substantially Uh, so that you know when they are handed over to private owners uh, they they actually have a chance to run well 
uh, and and to do this i think it is crucial that the government maintain a very arms length relationship rather than actually uh, being too close to the operations of these entities nevertheless i think there are a few healthier and well run public sector banks i think they could be reprivatized perhaps even right away in my opinion uh, the weaker public sector banks that are not yet ready and where the uh, governance uh risk management uh, technology improvements are required i would say in those cases it might be better to prioritize their model to something like microcredit or microfinance in the end everyone justifies public sector banks based on performing a development of financial inclusion role but the problems of public sector banks are actually heavily due to the industrial loans and that's a paradox in a way that we need to acknowledge and so we need to prioritize their models into more profitable socially valuable microcredit microfinance if they do underwriting monitoring and recovery well in this segment their valuations will improve uh, and down the line they could be reprivatized so i i i think it is required divestments and reprivatization are required but it has to be a comprehensive well well calibrated well telegraphed strategy over a period of time Uh, if it is done in this manner it would be possible to take the unions along because otherwise there is no capital coming in and these banks are actually just losing their share of deposits and loans steadily over the last 10 years uh, the last point therefore is that um, the markets also need to have predictability on how this yeah. is going to work because only then investors will come in at the right prices Uh, and you know yeah. the last thing last point i would make is that you don't want to do this under a lot of duress what you observed during the southeast asian crisis uh, in 97 yeah. 98 is that these countries had to sell their financial firms which were government owned at very fire sale cheap prices uh, to the fdi investors in many cases private equity investors who often came and then just flipped the shares very quickly rather yeah. than becoming long term institutional investors in these firms so you don't want to do this under duress you want to do it as a comprehensive well articulated strategy that's telegraphed over a period of time okay at last i would conclude by asking that according to the fitch ratings the indian gdp would contract by minus 10.5 percentage in the financial year 2021 and not just fitch but other institutions i have also predicted that india's gdp will not do well so uh, what according to you is the main reason behind this and do you think that it's only covid or it or there's some uh, external factors to it as well Uh, I mean, certainly the COVID shock is very, very important. Uh, unfortunately, as I explain in the book, most of my book was written before the COVID shock. In fact, practically all of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The initial conditions, however, weren't great, uh, and therefore we have to deal with our initial conditions, COVID or no COVID. We have to restore yeah. fiscal and financial stability, as I keep saying, uh, restoring them with a commitment. to bring them in order for the medium term will actually help us undertake the necessary expenditures in the short run because the markets investors rating agencies will be forgiving of a stretch in the short run if they have a clear path that you mean business to restore them to reasonable levels in the medium term 
but I think the other reason why I think financial and fiscal stability would be very important to secure is because right now we keep paying so much attention to the temporary problems that keep arising because we have never fixed them for the next decade or two that we are not able to focus on truly transformational reforms or structural reforms on the ground in land, labor, agriculture, infrastructure and so on. I think on agriculture some forward movement is being held but we need to do so much more on land, labor and infrastructure uh, in order to improve the ease of doing business. You know there is no shortcut unfortunately to grow and certainly not when you have had such a large shock like COVID and the associated contraction in the GDP. So I would say fiscal, finance and structural reforms on an institutional footing, thinking about 10-20 years ahead, are all required along with immediate relief and support measures for the most affected states, citizens and sectors of the economy. And I stress the two are not exclusive. In fact, the longer term reforms are necessary so that you can create the space from markets, investors and rating agencies to undertake the necessary expenditures in the short run. So I encourage uh, all of you to read the book. Uh, The preface chapter lays out the common thread across the various speeches. And then there are several sections in the book on individual topics. Uh, I hope you find it a useful read and uh, needless to say, if you have questions along the way, my email address is on the internet. Feel free to drop me an email. Thank you okay. so much, Rich, okay. for thank the you opportunity to talk. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir, for taking out the time. And friends, do do check out the link in the description if you wish to order quest for restoring uh, financial stability in India. This is Ritwish Andela signing off. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I hope.